We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 21. Let's read. I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. How were you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you, yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. Now, Paul is talking or making reference to a number of different points that we have touched on in different weeks, so I'm not going to go through each one of those phrases, each one of the statements as such, but in this chapter... Paul is wrapping up in this chapter and the next. He's wrapping up his letter to the Corinthians. And he concludes his defense of his apostleship. And we'll get to that specific point in just a second. But he's concluding that, that defense as such. And then in both chapters 12 and 13, Paul is preparing them, preparing the Corinthians for his planned third visit to them. And what he's doing to prepare them is that he's entreating them to set things right before he arrives. He doesn't want to get there and have to rebuke and correct and discipline. He wants to visit them with great joy to see that they have repented, to see that they are obeying the Lord, and to see that they are following the Lord as mature disciples of Christ. So he is trying to prepare them. Now, there's one important point to note that as Paul persevered in demonstrating among the Corinthians the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles, as he does that, he explains in verse 19, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? You know, now, and you know when we talked about the boasts and everything else in the previous chapters, 
It sounds like Paul is defending himself, right? But here he comes out and he says, have you been thinking that all this time I've been defending myself to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. He's not making these statements to, to, to justify himself. He's not making these boasts and talking about his sufferings. And, and you know, he's, not, he's not doing that so that he could exploit the believers for financial gain. Look at all this that I have done for you. Now you give to me. He's not doing things like that. He's not saying that, you know, this is the gospel message and we must strictly adhere to it. And he's not self, you know, going through self-denial and not going, you know, not having things for himself for their sake so that they would be enriched. He's not doing all these things so that somehow he will be lifted up or somebody will say, Paul, what a great guy. He says, I have been doing all these things to strengthen you, to build you up, to make sure that you are presented as the bride of Christ, even as we've been praying. Paul wasn't trying to defend himself at all, but he's trying to prepare the church for Christ. Paul was always laboring for the benefit of others, for the common good. That's his focus all the time. So when he speaks, that's what he's paying attention to. But you will notice in Paul's final directions to the Corinthians before he visits, that he is concerned that they may not set things right. He's afraid that when he visits, he may not find what he is expecting and they may not find what they are expecting. He's expecting that they would have dealt with discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. He's expecting that they have repented of impurity, sexual sin, debauchery and that all of which they had previously indulged in. There should be an expectation for us in the church all the time that we would not have any of these things. But this is what Paul is saying. These are my expectations for you when I would come to visit. But he's afraid of missed expectations. So this morning, let's consider wrong expectations and right expectations about others. When we were studying Acts chapter 27 and Acts chapter 28, we dealt with the topic of expectations for ourselves. And we said, how should we set expectations for ourselves? How do we think about things? How do we you know, come to a frame of mind about things, expectations for about our life, uh, our marriages, our careers, our personal goals? And most of the time, our expectations for these things are based on our own desires or our own ambitions, our own thinking. We come up with an idea in our head and we say, I expect this to happen. And I expect this person to do this for my sake in this way. And I expect that I will respond in, like, you know, in this way. And I expect to do these things. And we, 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 whether we consciously uh, think about them or not, we're actually setting up expectations all the time for ourselves. And we do that constantly. Now the question, and you know, the, the question that we asked at that point in time when we were looking at the book of Acts was, are we setting expectations based on God's word, his promises, and his direction? 
right? And we talked about that in terms of how we would apply that. Now, the reality is that, you, and you know this, that from a very early age, you can be two years old and you have missed expectations, you know? And by the time you're three years old, you're complaining, you said you would do this, right? All through our life, we have missed expectations that others have set for us or that we have set for ourselves. And what happens all through our lives is that these missed expectations lead to some of our greatest disappointments and problems in life. All through life about our missed expectations about our parents, about our careers, our families, our friends, our education, our marriages, our parenting, and the trajectory of our lives. We have all these missed expectations that show up, and because of them, we are disappointed. Now, some of these expectations may have been set by the influence of the world, by our own selfish desires, and some explicitly because of demonic and devilish influences. Right? Some things has influenced, something has influenced us to set an expectation that may not be right, or you know, truly not of the Lord. But some expectations may have been set through somewhat right motives and at least partially godly influences. You know, so we sort of go through it. But regardless of whether they were right or wrong expectations, missed expectations are a source of ongoing issues, both for us personally, in our homes, and in our churches. We have expectations. Oh, that didn't happen. How come they didn't do this? Why didn't this happen at this time? These are expectations that we've set, and then we get disappointed. So, here, as we looked at Acts and Romans, and we said, oh, we have to trust the Lord, we have to look to Him, we have to be you know, building on or, or applying those principles to apply to our personal expectations. Here, as we think about expectations for others, we've got to do the same kinds of things, build on, use those same principles. But I want to cover a couple of things here as we think about wrong expectations and right expectations. When it comes to setting wrong expectations about others, just as the Corinthians did about Paul, or the Jewish people who were eagerly awaiting the Messiah did about Jesus. They set wrong expectations. When we were studying the book of Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, we saw that the people of Israel, the children of Israel, had this expectation of what the Messiah would do. The Messiah would come, he would be a conquering king, he would do all these things, and, you know, and here comes Jesus riding on a, the donkey, and you know, the son of a carpenter, and, and he didn't meet their expectations. And they said, oh, this can't be the Messiah. You know, the, the Corinthians and other, others and all of those churches in the ancient Near East, they had certain expectations of what Paul should do. And they, and they compared him and they expected certain things and they wanted certain results. And when that didn't happen, they were upset. They were disappointed. They criticized they went after him in all these ways. But if you notice in all of these missed expectations, the common factor in all of this is that the object of our expectations, the person that we are expecting to do something, is the, the reason that there's a missed expectation is because that person is not doing what we think should be done. Right? We've come up with an idea. And like I said, the origin or the source of that idea may be even 
somewhat of God. But the point is that we come up with this expectation of another person based on what we think. And then we expect that person to think, to speak, and to act in a certain way. And when they don't, we get upset. In fact, mental health counselors suggest that by living by others' wrong expectations of you, or setting wrong expectations of others, it can all be very harmful because when the expectations are missed, it breeds anger and resentment and depression. These are very real, real consequences. When the expectations are missed, we're angry with the other person, we're angry with ourselves, we're angry with the situations, it breeds resentment and all sorts of depression Come, can come. Now, the thing is, we may not even realize that we have wrong expectations for others. We may justify what we expect, and we may say, oh, you know, this is all correct. We may find out only when the expectations are missed that they were wrong expectations. And it's possible that we may never find out that our expectations were wrong. We, we just don't even realize we don't ever realize and especially if we are overwhelmed by the emotion of missed expectations if there's anger resentment bitterness disappointments you know depression all of this is overwhelming us we will never pay attention to say did i even have the right expectation we just focus on the missed expectation right so when expectations are missed though and again I'm going to go through this fairly quickly because I want to get to how we deal with the right expectations, setting those things, because that's where we want to focus. Like we've always talked about or through these series, even as we have emphasized, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on the darkness. We need to spend time in the light. We need to understand what is the right thing to do. And when we do that, then the wrong thing is not done. So when there are missed expectations or wrong expectations or we have the false expectations about others, what should we do when we become aware of that? When that happens, we need to repent. We need to say to the Lord, Lord, I have been going after this based on my own selfish desire and ambition, based on my own way of thinking. I am sorry. I have not been asking you. I have not been coming to you. I have not been seeking your guidance. I am coming up with this. And when it doesn't happen, I'm disappointed. I repent. And then I rely on you, Lord, to set my thinking right. I rely on you to make my ideas and all these expectations that I would have come in line with your purpose and your will. And I yield to the Holy Spirit to remove this emotion that I'm feeling to remove disappointment and anger and resentment and depression and all of these things. Oh, Holy Spirit, you've got to come and do this work in me. Because otherwise those things are just going to overwhelm me. So we come to the Lord in these ways and we pray and we ask the Lord. And then finally, as a part of that missed expectations, recovering from missed expectations, we want to pray for the other person. We want to pray earnestly. Not, oh, they didn't do this. Okay, all right, I'll go to the Lord, I'll, be, I'll repent, okay, fine, God, just heal me. But, mm, but they still didn't do this. That's the way we sort of, sort of react. And we've got to say, God, you do this work in me, you cleanse me, you heal me, but I want to pray for that person. I think these things, and you've got to set my thinking right, 
But I want to pray for that person. And I want to see that they are built up. Remember, Paul's focus always, building up the other person, strengthening them, seeing them you know, fulfilled in the Lord. Which brings us to the point of right expectations. All through the books of First and Second Corinthians, Paul is setting right expectations for the Corinthian believers. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, you're not doing the right thing. You know, you, you were all, you know, doing the wrong thing. You were living in sin. You, he, he doesn't just point out their sin. He says, this is what you should do. This is what the Lord is calling you to. This is the holiness and the purity that he requires. This is why this is important. He's always pointing to the right things to the, and setting those right expectations. And he's doing that in line with everything in the Bible because the Bible is filled with wisdom and instruction that can help us set the same right expectations about others. Not to have ungodly expectations, but to have godly expectations. The Bible does that and is giving us that opportunity. But setting right these biblical or biblically right expectations on others or about others, there are at least four important prerequisites for that. And these points are not on the screen, but I will, I'll go through them and I want to make sure that you're paying attention to them. They'll be posted online later and so on. But there are four prerequisites to being able to set an expectation about somebody else. Right? This is not, it's not about yourself, even though these four points apply for ourselves also. I'm speaking specifically about how would you set an expectation for somebody else. First and foremost, when you're dealing with another person, first and foremost, seek and learn God's will and God's call for that person. So if you look at that person and say, I think you should be a doctor. I think you should be an engineer. I think you should be whatever. Did you hear from the Lord to be able to make that statement? Or is that your expectation? Now, don't, parents, don't, you know, don't, don't start to react to that. You know, don't think I'm speaking only to you. I'm just giving you an example to say, how do you determine that this is what that person should do, where they should go, how they should live. How do you do that? So the first and f most important thing for us to do as a prerequisite to having an expectation about somebody else is to seek the Lord and say, Lord, what is your call for this person? What is your will for this person? Whether it's my child or my sibling or my whoever, what is your call? What is your purpose for this? And when I start to understand that, even as I'm starting to understand that, I have to safeguard against imposing my thoughts on God's will, over God's will. Because I can say, Lord, I know that you want only the best for this person, so that must mean that they must be a doctor. Right? You know what I'm saying? Like we, we start to impose our thinking onto God's will or over God's will. We say, you know what? I'm sure that you will, Lord, for this person to deal with me in this way. So I expect that they will do this, this, and this. And we have decided our thinking is right. We haven't really asked the Lord. We've decided that we are right. Secondly, the second thing is, 
We have to hear from God if, even if we should, and then how, and then when we should interact with that person. So you have now heard from the Lord that this is God's will and purpose for them. Should you immediately go to them and say, you should do this? No. What you should be doing first is praying that they will hear from God. And then you pray that you can go to them, if you're even supposed to go to them, at the right time, in the right way. That you don't go and impose God's will on them, even if it is God's will on them, where they're not even ready to hear it. So you don't impose an expectation on that person. You listen to the Lord to know when you should communicate with this person. How you should communicate. What's the tone you should use? How should you bring up the conversation? What should you do? How should you do that? There's a need for us to pay attention and be led by the Holy Spirit when we deal with others. So when we say to them, I think you should do this. I think you should go there. I think you should sell your business. I think you should do that. You know, before we start making these statements, even if we have heard from the Lord, let's make sure that we're also saying, should I say this now, Lord? How should I say this? Do I do this, you know, in a big crowd? Do I do this one-on-one? -on -one? How should I do this? Tell me, Lord. Show me. Three, so we seek the Lord's will for that person and learn God's will for that person. Two, we communicate with that person only according to the Lord's uh, direction. And three, no matter what the Lord is communicating, let's say that he communicates with you something that is contrary to your initial thinking. We have to hear that the Lord is speaking, discern the voice of the Lord, and then we have to trust that the Lord has a plan and a purpose for that person that is to prosper them and not to bring them to harm, that he has plans to give them a hope, right expectations, and a future. That's from Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. There are many other scriptures that support that. But the point is that even as we hear from the Lord that this is what he's got for them, we have to trust the Lord that he will bring that to pass. We have to let the Lord do his work. Now, you may be an instrument, a catalyst. You may be instrumental in making that change take place in that person's life, especially if it's your own family, your own children, your own siblings, you know, people who are close to you. You may be very influential and instrumental in affecting change in that person's life. But you have to let God do his work. You can't run ahead of God. You can't, you know, sort of take some other direction. You have to say, Lord God, I trust you that you have a purpose and a plan for this person's life and that you will do what is right. And then, number four, no matter what the outcome, you let God be the judge. Let's say that they respond to you. They say, oh, I hear you, I understand, I'll change this, I'll repent, I'll do that, I'll go in this direction. What should you do? It's the same statement that Paul made about why he had a thorn in the flesh. Do you now boast? Do you get elated? Do you say, ah, I told this person to do this, and they did this? Because then we're boasting about our strengths, our, you know, what we heard from the Lord. 
You know, I waited on the Lord and I heard that this was the purpose, you know, and call that he had on your life. And he told me to communicate it and I communicated and you did it. Look at that. And we take credit. And so the Bible is very clear. Paul was very clear. He said, I, you know, I'm, I, if I have to boast, I could boast about so many things about you. You would be my commendation. You would be my letter of commendation. What I've done in your midst. But I don't need to say, speak about anything like that. I don't need to tell somebody else or I don't need to talk about anything like that. Right? So even if the expectations are met, the right expectations are set and the right expectations are met, you don't need to boast about that. But especially if the expectations are set and they are not met, you still don't need to talk about it. Because the Lord is the judge, not you. You're not the one that has to say, oh, you didn't do this, right? You didn't do it. You missed out, right? You were supposed to go in this direction. You didn't do it, see? You don't have to do that. You simply have to say, Lord, I trust you. I continue to trust you. And if that person has made a mistake, they are accountable to the Lord, not to you. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what your relationship. They are accountable to the Lord. Now, ironically, there can be missed expectations even when you set the right expectations. Right? So no matter how clear the will of God, no matter how clearly God communicates, and no matter how clear the consequences of inaction or wrong action are, the other person may not do the right thing. That may happen. They are independently able to respond to the call of God, to the prompting of God, to the work of God. And when they do the wrong thing, as sad as it may be, as difficult as it is, as, as, as heart-wrenching, as grievous as it can be, and, as, and by the way, this is not just for us. I'm speaking about God. God is grieved. The Bible speaks about it as causing grief to God when we do these things, when we rebel against Him, when we reject Him, when we disobey Him, when we go the opposite direction, when we say there's no God. You know, when we do these things, it grieves the Lord. He's not just impar you know, imperial, uh, just uh, sort of unaffected by all of that. He says, look, I grieve for you. And in the middle of that grief and in all of that, we have to rely on God to deal with our missed expectations. We still have to yield to the Holy Spirit to remove disappointment and anger and resentment and depression. And we still have to pray earnestly for that person. It doesn't matter that they missed the expectations. We must entrust them to God. We must trust that God loves them. We must trust that God cares for them. We must say, God, I am going to keep hoping in you. And there's that word that I want to bring up. As we deal with our expectations, our expectations for others. You'll notice that there's a subtle shift, but powerful shift that takes place in our thinking and therefore in our behavior in terms of our interactions with that other person. You see, we shift from having expectations to having hope. And there's a big difference. An expectation is a strong belief that something, something good, something bad, something that you think is going to happen, something that is from God, something that is not from God. An expectation is that something of some nature is going to happen in the future. But godly, biblical hope 
is an eager anticipation. It's an expectant confidence in God's strength and faithfulness that what he has promised will come to pass. That's the shift. We're not looking at these circumstances. We're not considering what we've said. We're not looking at what that person did and then saying, well, I expect this to go well. I don't expect this to go well. I expect this to happen. No, we're shifting to where we say, God, this is your plan. This is your purpose. This is how you're dealing with this child of yours. And this is what you said you will do. And my hope is in you. Not in this person fulfilling my expectations. My hope is in you. When I shift from expectation to hope, now I look to the Lord and then I will say, Oh Lord God, no matter what I think, no matter what I see, no matter what these things are going on right now, I will put my hope in you. And I want to put my hope in you for this person. I want to pray for this person with that kind of sincerity. I want to believe you, Lord, to work in their life so that when we have that faith in God-based hope, that hope will enable us to persevere in prayer, to persevere in patience until there is a breakthrough, to persevere in joy when grief is coming at us. When there is great sorrow and sadness and grief, you can't deny it. But in the midst of it, there will be an ability to persevere in joy, in the joy of the Lord that will be our strength. And there will be an opportunity to persevere in peace. Peace that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And there will be an opportunity to persevere in love. To continue to love that person who is going against everything that you expect. Oh, what's the bottom line? We respond and apply the word of God that we have heard by setting right expectations to build others up. This is not so that we can say, look at me. I know how to hear from God and tell people what their expectations should be. This is so that we can say, look at, the, look at what the Lord is doing because he is seeking to build us up. And I want to do everything that I can to build you up to encourage you, to cause you to move closer to the Lord. Oh, the reason that Paul did not give in to the Corinthians' wrong expectations of him was because he knew what the Lord's purpose for his life was. When they told him, don't go to Jerusalem, he said, you know, whether I'm put to death or whether I'm imprisoned or anything, what does it matter? I know what the call of God on my life is. I'm willing to suffer anything. I'm willing to go through anything because I know what the Lord has called me to. He relied on what he knew and he didn't have to behave like the false apostles in order to convince the believers that he was also an apostle. He said, I don't need to boast about things. I know who I am. I know what the Lord has done. And so he's able to remain true. He doesn't compromise the gospel message to please the Corinthians. He doesn't take advantage of them. He doesn't comply with their expectations because he knows what he's supposed to do. And the same thing, the reason that Paul continued to love the Corinthians and do all that he could to build them up was because he knew what the Lord's purpose for them was. 
The Lord wanted to bring them up. The Lord wanted to give them a hope and a future. The Lord wanted them to be the pure bride. You know, the Lord was not saying, oh, you know, these people, terrible. Cut them out. He's saying, I will take them and I will wash them and I will refine them and I will make them pure and I will make them the bride that is prepared for my coming. And Paul knew that. So he says, in spite of all these things, and even though I'm concerned, and even though I'm afraid that I may not find these things when I visit, oh, I trust the Lord. And I know that his plan for you is to refine you that way. We can surmise from the record in the book of Acts and Romans of Paul's journeys and what he's describing that he did make a third trip to Corinth. He did receive the collection that was being prepared. Remember we read about that in previous chapters. And he did bring the funds to the believers in Jerusalem. And we can conclude that Paul's expectations for the Corinthians were met, at least in part, that they had repented of all of these grievous sins and that there was a unity in the church and there was the continuation or the fulfillment of certain actions that they had committed to. So... All of those, we can surmise or conclude, did happen. But again, the Bible doesn't provide those specific details. It doesn't focus on those specific details because the focus is not on whether Paul's expectations were met or missed. The fact that Paul says, I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find this, and you're afraid that you may not find something in me, that's not even his focus. His focus was not on his expectations. His focus on whether, was on whether the Corinthians were built up, whether they were strong in the Lord, whether they were living in righteousness and discernment to avoid deception, and whether they were preparing not just for Paul's visit, but for the Lord's coming. Paul's focus for the Corinthians and the church, which should also be our focus, is that we have a continuing relationship with a sovereign God who works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that, Lord, when we think we have figured it out, we're actually not, not thinking right. I pray, Father, that we would put aside our thinking our expectations, our desires, our ambitions for ourselves and for others. And we would look to you, Holy Spirit, so that our thinking will be right, our expectations would be godly, and most importantly, that all of that would be transformed to have hope, biblical hope in you. Come, Lord Jesus. Do this in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.